We are in Daniel chapter 1. Find your way over. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles there on the back shelf. You can grab one. Love for you to follow along so you can see God's Word right there in front of you. It's back to school season. All over town, campuses are up and running again and living rooms. Our young adults are packed up and headed to their colleges, right? Now, I was surprised to learn this week that back to school season uh, is the second largest seasonal shopping period of the year when it comes to consumer spending. Uh, The average back to school spending per U.S. household, any guesses if you're not looking at the notes? How much do you think the average U.S. household spends on back to school each year? 700 bucks um, amounting to tens of billions of dollars per year. That's a lot of pencils. A new school year presents, of course, opportunities for students to grow and to learn and to be recognized for things like student of the month. Get all those bumper stickers there on your car. Maybe valedictorian for your seniors or salutatorian. Maybe they'll letter in a sport, get that starring role in the drama or the musical, win the award for most school spirit or graduate summa cum laude from college. Now, all of those things can perhaps be good things, but the life and the testimony of Daniel challenges each and every one of us to take an honest look at what we're really aiming for and pursuing after in our own lives and in the lives of our kids and families. Now, think about this question for a moment. What was Daniel's greatest accomplishment? And just think about that in your own mind, because he was a a person, a man who accomplished a whole, whole lot. You know, when we meet him, he's just transferred schools, as it were, from Jerusalem to Babylon. But by the end of his story, he will have become the most successful in the entire world empire other than the king himself. He'll have wealth and position and prestige. And then when that kingdom falls, it'll happen again to him in the next kingdom, the kingdom of Persia. At each point in his story, we can take a look at the snapshots that were given. Though there's few of them, we we take a look. He'll either be the top of his class, the leader in his field, the man that others go to consistently for answers. He had access. He had accomplishments. He had awards. He was the most successful person that a person could be, maybe in the entire planet. But when we read these chapters in Daniel, it's clear Now, what made him remarkable, what made Daniel matter, had nothing to do with his earthly achievements. I think we all understand that if we're familiar with the story. What made Daniel matter? It didn't have anything to do with his earthly achievements. The great accomplishment of Daniel was the work of God in his life, the way that God used him, the word God showed him. And it's clear that in Daniel's own mind, living out his faith was his greatest goal. It was his goal. He didn't really have ambitions for other things. All these other things just kept happening to him. He'd be given these positions. He'd be given this understanding. He'd be given these awards. And at one point, he's going to say, hey, just stop giving me awards and positions. Give it to somebody else. I'm just here to serve my God. And in his own mind, even, that was his goal. His goal in his own mind was not to have the best education, was not to get the best position. His mind and his heart was made up to serve God at the expense of all other things if necessary, at the expense of his very life if necessary. Not just once in a moment of, you know, blaze of glory, but multiple times 
It was the pattern of his life to say, hey, I will serve God at the expense of all other things. And that's coming from a man who had greater access, greater opportunity on the earthly realm than maybe any other person on the planet at the time. This evening, as we take a look at our text, I would suggest to us that Daniel's example challenges us to each and every one of us, move our goalposts out quite a bit further than we would naturally tend to put them. This isn't a rebuke to any of us, but we have to come to grips with the fact that the natural mind, the natural culture around us sets up these sort of goals that here's what people should do. Here's what success looks like. Here's what you should dedicate your life toward. And the example of Daniel, the testimony of Daniel reminds us that all of us as Christians need to put those goalposts way out beyond what the natural man and the natural world would put them. If you're a parent, you've got goals and hopes for your little ones, of course. You naturally crave their success, their recognition. You want them to receive those, those achievements and to be recognized for them, right? Of course, if you're not a parent or if that phase of your life is past, this all still applies to you because your own life is on a trajectory as well. And Daniel here, even at a young age, dares us to take a real look at our goals in life and to see what we are launching ourselves toward. And Daniel, the book, pulls back the wool on what the world system really is, offers a lot of things, sure looks like success, but when you pull it back, it tells the rest of the story. Now, our text is going to open up in chapter 1, verse 1, and there we read this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The year is around 605 B.C., 600 years before Christ was born. Nebuchadnezzar had only recently received the throne of Babylon after his dad died. He would rule for 43 years, during which time the empire would control much of the civilized world. Now, I find it immensely interesting that the book does not start in the first person. Daniel's going to pivot halfway through the book to start talking about the first person. He's going to say, I, Daniel, here's what I saw, here's what happened. But here at the beginning, we don't get a description of Daniel being captured, right? We don't get a description of him looking out his window one day and seeing the army of Babylon coming or seeing the siege mount built up. Uh, instead, the first character we're introduced to is Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he is a remarkable historical figure, a remarkable uh, man to learn about and read about, not just in this book, but what little they know of him from uh, extra-biblical sources, a remarkable man. During this period of time, it's estimated that Babylon was the largest city in the world. They think it was maybe the first to ever reach a population of over 200,000 people in the city. Nebuchadnezzar ruled with absolute power. Later on, Daniel's going to be talking to his son, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar's son, and he's going to be talking about how Nebuchadnezzar, here's how he describes him. He says, he was a man who killed whoever he wanted, who established whatever he wanted. He ruled more people than anyone else with more power than maybe anyone else has in the rest of history. Absolute, total, authoritarian rule. He had killed who he wanted. He established who he wanted. Now, the king was a great warrior, but he was also a great builder. By all accounts, Babylon was a magnificent city. People still talk about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Of course, we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar had his share of mental problems, quite pronounced mental problems, in fact. 
He could be incredibly hasty, even to his own hurt. In a minute, you know, in a few studies, we're going to see that just like that, he's going to say, okay, kill all the leaders in the government. Kill all the wise men that Babylon has. Kill them all. That, that's probably a bad. Can you imagine for a minute our president saying, kill everybody in the cabinet? And you know what? Kill all of Congress. We'll just replace those guys. Uh, of course, there in the fiery furnace, we're going to see him take his mightiest warriors. He's going to tell them, he says, I want the mightiest warriors to throw these three Hebrews into the fiery furnace, and I want it so hot, I want it done right now. And it, they did that, and it burned up his mightiest warriors. And so he could be hasty to a fault, but he could also be patient. We get hints of that here. He was willing to lay sieges to his enemies, for example. At one point, it's going to take like 16 years for him to lay siege to a city, and they would just wait it out. He would undertake long building projects and work through them. He established a training program here in chapter 1 for his cabinet that would last three years. And so he was, on the one hand, super hasty in some situations, but he was also very patient in some situations. He was a man of absolute power, incredible ambition, great ingenuity, and cavernous pride. He could be brutal or benevolent, thoughtful or impulsive. You could count on him to fly off the handle at any given moment, but also to really follow through on what he said he would do, whether it would be good or bad towards you. He would say a lot of things. He's like, if this happens, then I'm going to do this to you. And sometimes that would be a good thing. He would give you a reward or give you some promotion, or sometimes he would pull you apart and make your house into an ash heap. And what he said he was going to do, well, he did it. In the Bible, we discover also that he was a man whom God used to discipline his people Israel. He was a man to whom God revealed a great vision of the future in his dream, and a man who God loved and wanted to save. By the end, this madman king, this tyrant of a dictator, this murderer, is going to find saving faith in the God of Israel. And he's going to write a gospel track to tell the whole world, his whole empire, that the God of heaven is the God of heaven and that we should believe in him. Very interesting. It was a man God loved. He was the world's king, though. At this point here in chapter 1, he is the world's king, the foremost representative and executor of the power of the world system. He's the head of the system in which Daniel found himself. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. A great doctrinal theme in the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. It's shown right here, right from the beginning. Babylon's victory over Judah was something allowed by God for God's purposes, he was the one that said it was okay for Babylon to come and win a victory over the southern nation. Seven times we'll see some variation of this phrase that we see here, into his hand. It's a, it's a sort of image that keeps popping up throughout the book. We see it here in verse 2, that the Lord delivered the nation into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Later in chapter 3, we're going to see it again. Nebuchadnezzar is going to pompously boast that no God could save you out of my hand. And of course, that is exactly what happens. Later in chapter 7, that phrase is going to be used to reference the Antichrist and how in the future great tribulation, the Jews are going to be delivered into his hand for a specific amount of time. 
But despite how the circumstances may seem, the message of Daniel is clear. It is the Lord who holds life in his hands. We can trust our God because he holds our future. He holds the world in his hands. He holds life in his hands, the psalmist says. You are not adrift in your circumstances. You've not fallen off the boat of providence. The Lord knows you. He loves you. He has intentions and a plan for your life, and He has not abandoned you. You are beloved of God, and He holds your life in His hands. That is a great encouragement from this book. Now, again, I find it surprising how Daniel opens this book, not to introduce himself at first, but this pagan king. And then here, you know, if the first character is the Chaldean king, and then we're given this little list about these gold and silver cups that are taken from the cupboards of the temple. Who cares? I mean, that's what I think. They're going to pop back up later in chapter 5, but this is how you're opening your book? I don't care about cups from the temple, (laughs) you know. But it's setting up a cosmic contest here, and you get a sense of it from how it's written. Nebuchadnezzar had won a victory. He would lay siege to Jerusalem three times before it was totally destroyed. The one we're talking about here is the first time. He didn't totally destroy Jerusalem at this point, but he came in and won a relatively easy victory, took some of the people, and he took a bunch of the treasure from the house of the Lord. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes and he takes the articles into the temple of his God And when kings would do that, it was a symbol that, okay, your God is dead, my God is alive, your God has no power, my God has the power, look, I have his stuff, right? It's like the bully on the playground. I took the ball and now I'm leaving, and what are you going to do about it? And so Nebuchadnezzar is making this, you know, this show suggesting that Jehovah was dead and the Babylonian deities had won. And the book begins here to show the great contrast, not only to set up this cosmic contest and throughout especially the first half, but even into the prophecies, we're going to see this contest of these empires and these individuals and these, you know, forces that are trying to fight against the Lord and His people specifically, and how the Lord has so much power over that. Yeah, lions, they can't do anything to my people. Fire, that can't do anything to my people. And then into the prophecies, talking about how the Antichrist is going to come and how he's going to rage against God's people, the Jews, but how the Lord is going to win those victories. And so we're setting up this cosmic contest, but also here, we, it's beginning to show a contrast between the Lord's way and the world's way. And if Daniel and his three friends' testimony tells us anything, it's that there is a difference between the way of the Lord and the way of the world. Most of us are pretty familiar with these passages and the stories. If you're raised in a Christian home, the lion's den, the fiery furnace, even the vegetable test, those are some of the first stories you even learn as a little, you know, kid growing up being exposed to the Bible. And as we see Nebuchadnezzar doing this here with the articles from the temple, it puts on display the difference between the Lord's way and the world's way. What is valuable? What is the trophy that we are after? What is the goal? We see here that Nebuchadnezzar takes the spoils of war as proof of the supposed power of his inanimate idols. Now, God is going, we know, to use his servants to prove his own living power. The Lord doesn't treat you like some cup, like some 
trophy, I mean that in a negative way, like you're, you're this little trophy thing. He says, nah, nah, look what I've done. You're not a spoil in his mind. You're a servant, and he loves you, and he's going to use you to show his living power, not supposed power. You see, the Babylonian here points to some cup and says, look how great Marduk is. Marduk didn't do any of that. Marduk is a silly little idol made out of wood and stone. He didn't do anything. Instead, the Lord comes and does something very different than what we see Nebuchadnezzar doing with these treasure cups here. Here's what Paul said concerning God's work in us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, but we have this treasure, speaking of the gospel, in earthen vessels, our lives, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And so that's what God is doing. That's how God shows his power. Not like a bully taking something that belongs to someone else, but, but raising up his servants and says, look what I can do through a life. Look at the difference my love makes. Look how I can protect a person and how I can use a person and how I can fill a person and build a person. Look what I can do. I don't just pilfer cups from some God's cupboard and put them in my cupboard. Big difference. A lot is set up here in these opening two verses, but we note that from an earthly perspective, the story starts with our heroes in total defeat. Of course, we know that our God loves a good underdog story, right? Think of all the underdog stories in the Bible. God loves an underdog story. And that principle, it comes to us in the New Testament of my strength is made perfect through your weakness. You're going to be the underdog that God wants to use to show his great victory and his great strength. Verse 3 says this, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. It's not clear how many of these youth were taken. Some commentators think it was 50 or 60. Some think it was thousands. We don't really know. Here's what's significant, and here's what I want us to come away with. Daniel and his three friends were not the only Hebrews taken, okay? And so as we're reading these narrative stories, unfortunately, something that we need to keep in the back of our minds is that there were other Hebrews there too. There were other young people who had been raised, in a sense, in the culture of the Jews, raised like Daniel and his friends were, others who had been exposed to the God of heaven and who had, you know, the opportunity to hear the law of God. But there with the defiled food in chapter 1, there with the golden image in chapter 3, there with the command not to pray to anyone but Darius in chapter 6, Only Daniel and his friends do what God wanted. Their peers, their friends, maybe even some of their family members. Well, it seems that in these scenes, it's only these four men who stood their ground and honored God rather than men. Now, we learn here that Daniel and his pals were of distinguished background. They're of the noble class. They were perhaps relatives of King Hezekiah himself, depending on how you read the prophecy of Isaiah and all of that. But at very least, they were part of the noble ruling class in the nation of Judah. They would have been well-educated. They would have been well taken care of, even from an early age. And at the time, they would have been in their teens. Again, scholars are a little bit divided. Some think they were 14. Some think they were 19. Let's call them 15 or 16, and we're in uh, safe territory. For sure, they were in their teens. But here, they are forcibly taken from their homes to Babylon as hostages, Remember, Nebuchadnezzar hadn't totally overthrown Jerusalem or the nation of Judah at this time. 
All kinds of political problems were happening. Nebuchadnezzar was solidifying his empire. And he goes to Jerusalem in 605 and he says, look, you guys are acting up down here. I don't like that. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to cause some damage. I'm going to take a bunch of your stuff. And I'm taking all of your noble kids. And we're going to take them back to Babylon. What do you think is going to happen if you act up again? Is kind of the idea. They're taken as hostages. And so we see that from the beginning, there's a big difference between them, Daniel and his friends, and say, Esther. Now, if you've been around here at Calvary for long enough, back when we did our studies through the book of Esther, you remember that a careful reading reveals that though she and the other Jews there at the time were exiled, yes, they had all by that time been taken to Babylon. Jerusalem had fallen. It's decades after Daniel chapter 1. But Esther's participation in Ahasuerus's sensual beauty contest was voluntary. She signed up to be, you know, maybe the next queen, America, Babylon's next top queen lady, right? She signed up willingly. Uh, she is an example of someone who made the choice to turn from her sin in the middle of her story. But that's not what's happening with Daniel and his friends there. They're taking that sword point. They were in Babylon not because they wanted to be, but because they were forced to be. Now, in verse 4, we're given a description of these boys. They were young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Now, here's where we start to get into it here. From the human perspective, Daniel was the cream of the crop. Okay? And Nebuchadnezzar were looking for young guys who would be in his palace court, his brain trust for the empire, an all-star team that looked good around town. He was going to give them immense responsibility in administrating the kingdom. They would be given the finest education the world had to offer, the very best. There wasn't a better school. There wasn't a better system. There wasn't a higher level of achievement. He was going to give them the highest positions in the known world. These were boys that were going to be molded into leaders of men with the highest degrees, with the best jobs in the world, who could model on the side. That's what's going on here in chapter 4. Sure, they had been taken as hostages. Okay, everybody has a bad day sometimes, but when we look at what's being offered to them here in verse 4 in this description, I mean, we sort of understand why Hezekiah responded the way he did back in 2 Kings. Here's what had happened. Hezekiah had made sort of a big blunder. He had been sick. The Lord sent a message through Isaiah saying, hey, man, you're going to die. Get ready to die. Hezekiah kind of pitched a fit about it and said, I don't want to die. And so the Lord said, okay, I'm going to give you 15 more years. Ended up, from our perspective, being a big mistake because he had Manasseh during those 15 years, and that's a big problem. But after he recovered from his infirmity, from his sickness, some Babylonian envoys came. This was many years before what we're reading here. Some Babylonian envoys came, and Hezekiah, feeling impervious and feeling magnanimous, he said, hey, dudes, let's take a sweet tour of not only my little you know, city here, but I'm going to show you all the treasure we have. Well, guess what? When you show Babylonians your treasure stores, they think, well, we would like to have that. And so... The Babylonian group leaves, and Isaiah comes and talks to Hezekiah, and he says, hey, uh, who were those guys? And Hezekiah says, that was the Babylonians. What did you show them? 
I showed him everything. I showed him all our gold. I showed him all the treasure in the house of God to show him how cool I am and how important I am and how wealthy we are. And Isaiah said, ma'am, you messed up. You messed up. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to return. They're going to take that stuff. They're going to take your sons and your descendants and the noble kids. They're going to take them back to Babylon. And you know what Hezekiah said? He said, that's great. Man, that'll be great for everybody. Now, we read that in 2 Kings, and we kind of wince. We're like, oh, no, no, obviously that's not great. Obviously, that's not what you want, Hezekiah. But then in our own lives, it is so hard to shake free of the ideas that we are bombarded with by our culture day in and day out, generation after generation, right? That the most important thing is getting into the right school and the right college. That the most important thing is getting the best job with the most material success, that those targets should be the primary goal of our lives and should be the primary goal of our kids' lives. It's so hard for us to shake free of that. We expect Hezekiah to shake free of that, but then in our own lives, we have to realize that that same thing is happening to us if we're not careful. Now, the book of Daniel turns the values of the world upside down. Daniel received all those things that we are told are the most important. He had the best background, the best education, the best job in the empire. He rose through the ranks. He received recognition. He had material wealth. In fact, we'll be told that he was 10 times better than the next guy on the list in terms of skill and ability and achievement. But what we find in the four or five stories from his life that we're given is that none of that ended up making the difference that mattered. What mattered in Daniel's life? It was none of those things. What mattered was his heart for the Lord. What mattered was that he served the Lord in spite of his circumstances, in spite of the temptations of Babylon. What matters is that he devoted his life to honoring God, not succeeding himself. Now listen, Had Daniel not made that the goal of his life, to honor God, to serve God, to follow God, then he would have made it out of chapter 1, but he would not have survived through chapter 2. And that's something that I think we really need to pay attention to. So in chapter 1, by the time we're done, we're going to see there were a bunch of Hebrews taken, enrolled in this program, given all of the fine things, and they're going to be turned into Babylonian, Chaldean guys. They're going to all make it through the program, right? Lay hold of the Babylonian dream, get everything they could have ever hoped for. But guess what? Then chapter 2 happens. And one night, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, a dream that really bothers him a lot. And he says, hey, I got to have an answer to this. So he calls all of those guys, all of those wise men, all of those Chaldeans. He says, come here. You got to tell me my dream and interpret the dream. They say, okay, well, tell us the dream. He says, no, no, no. You tell me the dream so that I know you know what you're talking about. And when they say nobody can do that, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He says, then kill all of those guys. And he sends out his palace guard and they start killing all of those guys. And the guards go out until God uses one of his faithful servants to save all of those lives. So had Daniel been an Esther here at the beginning, he would have survived chapter 1 and died in chapter 2. Those things that seemed so significant in the world's way of thinking, their looks, their ability, their intellect, their education, their position, their material success, those aren't the things that made Daniel Daniel. Those aren't the things that gave him real lasting significance in life. 
It was prayer that did. It was the revelation of God in his life that did. It was his integrity. It was his holiness. It was his determination to do the right thing. That's what made Daniel Daniel. That's what put him in the scriptures on your lap right now. You see, our goal for ourselves or for our kids can't be the list from verse 4. If we're looking at verse 4 and we're saying, that's what I want for me or that's what I want for my kids, then we are making the mistake that Hezekiah made and we're making the mistake that the rest of the Hebrews made that Daniel and his friends did not make. Why can't that be the list? Well, because as shown in what we see here, you know what? Your life could change in a moment. You might be a prince one day and a prisoner the next day like these guys. And real power is not in intellectual things or in physical things, but in spiritual things. The testimony of Daniel's life is that it was the Lord who gave him vigor. It was the Lord who gave him understanding and revelation. It was the Lord who gave him favor. It was the Lord who gave the increase that mattered. In the meantime, notice that Babylon's plan was to take these boys to mine their potential and to make them Babylonian. They wanted to reprogram these guys, redefine these guys. Their work would be for Babylon, their minds would be full of Babylon, their language would be changed, their culture would be changed, partly by duress, partly by delicacies. Look at verse 5. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Nebuchadnezzar's no dummy. He's not all stick and no carrot. This was a great deal. On the one hand, you had gone from being prince to prisoner, but then on the other hand, you went from siege to stuff in your face, right? This is a pretty good deal for enemies of the empire. Nebuchadnezzar was whining and dining them and then giving them training and job placement. Of course, as we find out, terms and conditions (laughs) applied, right? They didn't get the full job description that every day at work might be their last day. Oh, by the way, I might burn you alive tomorrow depending on how I'm feeling, and I'm not feeling good. They didn't really realize that part. This guy who is treating you so well today might murder you tomorrow, and no one would stop him. Because he didn't love these boys. He didn't care about these boys. He didn't care about their future. Now, the king of kings, the king we serve, he does love us. He does care about us. He does have a future for us. You see, to Nebuchadnezzar, these boys were just trophies to install in his palace, like a little golden statue. Look at my guys. And you're sure, if, they, if you can help me out by administrating my kingdom, great. And if I don't like the way you look at me today, I'm just going to cut your head clean off, and we'll just replace you with another little trophy. But that's not how our king operates. Think about our king. Watch him move in and around Daniel's life in these passages. Look how he protected Daniel. Look how he guided Daniel. Look how he encouraged Daniel. Look how he loved Daniel. How he had intentions and opportunities and a future for Daniel. And Daniel knew that. Now, we don't know about Daniel's life before Babylon, but clearly he had been raised to trust the Lord and to have confidence in him no matter what. He had been taught that the most important thing was to live by faith. And he had been trained to know that he could live out his relationship with God, whether he was in Jerusalem or in Babylon, in private or in public, whether things were good or things were very bad. Verse 6, now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, to Azariah Abednego. 
Scholars argue over the specifics of the meanings of all these names, but here's what we know for sure. All four of the Hebrew names were godly names. They all contained a reference or a, a part of God's name, all of them, either Jehovah or Yahweh, okay? And they praise God's greatness, the God of Israel. And it gives an indication that all four of these boys grew up in very devout, very spiritual homes. That's also clear from their bold, godly character throughout the book. Now, all four of the new names were ungodly, praising the false deities of Babylon. They all magnified these false gods. You see, the world was seeking to redefine these guys. You know, when you pull back the veneer a little bit, they, Babylon said, hey, we're not just going to give you a degree. We're here to change you. We're here to change who you are from the top to the bottom, from your name to your heart. We're going to change your thoughts. We're going to change your language. We're going to change your name. We're going to change all of that. We're going to change the trajectory of your life to serve us rather than this other God you had been brought up to serve. To accomplish this, Babylon would use feasts and favors and force and fear. But Daniel and his friends were able to rise above all of those methods and all of those circumstances and become the men we know them to be, great servants of the Most High God. Imagine for a moment that their parents or their mentors had aimed these boys' lives only at the things we read about in verse 4, those things that even our culture says, that's the goal. This is what you want to devote your life to, these achievements over here. What if Daniel's parents had done that? those temporal marks of what we, the world calls success. The best education, that's what matters. The best looks, that's what matters. The best performance, that's what matters. What would happen to them? One of the main takeaways from this book is that when you launch a life, take care where you aim. We talk about failure to launch among the millennial generation where they seem unable to move into the phase of life where they become independent and responsible for themselves. It's typified by, you know, the... 35-year-old living in his mom's basement, right? If any of you are doing that, God bless you. <laughs> but they talk about that, and they talk about failure to launch, right? But you know what? Just as problematic as failure to launch is, is launching a life in the wrong direction, whether that's your life or your kids' lives or whatever. Are we aiming toward the court of Babylon? Is that the best that I can do? Is that the thing that I'm most excited about and most dedicated toward? In whatever way it presents itself, whether it's that degree or that promotion or that award or that ranking, or do I believe what the Bible says about me, that there is a profoundly other point to life, a heavenly point, one that the Lord works out in me as I simply walk with him wherever he has scattered me? Should we just not care about studies then? Okay, I guess you're telling me who cares about school, who cares about trying hard, who cares about, you know, working hard in my job. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. After all, it was God who made Daniel who he was. God fashioned him person personally and purposefully to be remarkable in his appearance, to be remarkable in his intellect. God gave him that astounding IQ so that he could scatter Daniel where he wanted him. God put him into the noble class so that he could get him into the court of Nebuchadnezzar. But what we see is that even though it was good that Daniel developed his mind and all of these other things, it will become altogether clear that these earthly markers were not the significant help to the things that truly mattered. In Daniel's story, they, they were not the goal that Daniel was aiming at. 
his target was much higher. And as a result, rather than be successful on earth and just one day go to God in eternity, instead, Daniel is able to bring God with him to earth, right, and effect heavenly, eternal changes wherever he found himself, whether he was in pits or in palaces, no matter the temptations or the trials that came his way. To God be the glory, great things he has done. And what God did through Daniel, he wants to do through you and through me as we walk with him and realize that we are who he says we are and that what the world has to offer is nothing in comparison to a life with Jesus Christ. Amen?